Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you today that you are a God who saves. And Father, that Christ has come to purchase our redemption, that he has accomplished that which we, left to ourselves, would never be able to do. Father, that we come not based on our merits. We come, Father, even knowing that our actions, Lord, instead of bringing merit before you, only detract from us. Lord, we are so corrupted by sin that even the good things we seek to do are corrupted. But yet, Lord, your Son is holy and righteous. He is perfectly and completely in conformity with your character and nature. And Father, although we all sin and fall short of your glory, your Son does not. And that He is the one, it is on His merits that we come before you. That we have such a great Savior. That we have such a Redeemer. One who comes to sinners like us and changes us, transforms us into children of God. So Lord, we rejoice this morning as we are able to reflect upon this wonderful hope today. Father, as we look to your word, may it be the sharp two-edged sword that pierces deeply into the dividing of our souls, into the joints and marrow, that it may be the discerner of the thoughts and intents of our hearts today. Father, work among your people. Father, may your grace, your wondrous sovereign grace that planned all this, may it come to us today. Illumine your word through your spirit, and may we be changed. We pray this all in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. If you take your Bibles and turn with me to Zephaniah chapter 3. Zephaniah chapter 3. And we are winding down our study of Zephaniah. Uh, We'll be probably on these last uh, six verses or so for a couple weeks. There's a lot here to unpack. But we are at the end of this prophecy as we saw Zephaniah both a prophet of wrath and rejoicing. And as a prophet of wrath, he says some very clear, very specific things about the judgment that sin brings. But we also, as we've come to this ending of the book, find the joy of salvation in what Zephaniah speaks of. And again, just to quickly point back to what we looked at last week, in verse 8 of chapter 3, there is this ominous sort of foreboding tone that Zephaniah says, speaking for the Lord, in verse 8 where he says, Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. And our expectation is that much of the, the deep disturbing judgment that is described in Zephaniah, we expect that to be the thing that comes on the heels of what we find in verse 8. But then we find in verse 9, and he says at that time there's the surprise. Instead of God dealing in wrath, he deals with grace. He changes the speech of the peoples. He changes them to a pure speech so that they all may call 
upon the name of the Lord. And so as, as we have this book that is filled with such judgment, it ends with such hope. Hope in a Savior who brings salvation to the greatest of sinners. And now as we look at this last section of Zephaniah, what we find Zephaniah doing in response to all of that is now how do we, how do we respond to this gracious work of God in saving us? And the answer is we respond with Worship. Zephaniah, in these last verses of Zephaniah chapter 3, gives us reasons for worship. Look with me in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 14. We'll read through verse 20, and then we'll pretty much just be focusing on verse 14 this morning. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not! O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcasts and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in. At the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes says the Lord. What we find here is a clear call from God to respond to the salvation that God makes available, the salvation that God accomplishes. Our response to that must be joyful worship. And so my question to begin as we look at this passage is, why do you come to worship? What is your motivation in coming here this morning? Uh, you're really motivated this morning to get here on this bone-chilling, snowy morning. And I'm thankful that, that you made it. If you weren't able to come out, we give thanks that you're able to look online and watch us online. What, why are you doing this? Why do you come here and sing? What is it that motivates your worship to the Lord? And so Zephaniah is going to give us Several things, several descriptions of why we are to worship the Lord. And he begins in this passage by describing for us what it means to worship or, or the, the sense in which, the, the manner in which we are to go about our worship. And we see in verse 14, we're called to worship the Lord with jubilation. Now that's an older English word. We don't use that word a lot. Um, but I think it, it fits very well with what 
Zephaniah is calling us to. He is calling us to exuberant, jubilant, joyful worship of our God. And I think this is a needed correction for us today. Because how often do we go about our worship like it's just a routine? How often do we, do we come on Sundays and think, well, I know I need to be there because that's what I'm supposed to do as a good Christian. I know I need to be there. or Someone's going to ask where I was. I know I need to be there. I'm going to get the call from Pastor Phil. Where have you been? We think about those type of things. What is it that motivates us in coming here? And Zephaniah calls us to let worship be the overflow of joy that we have in the Lord. Is that why you sing? Is that why you come? Because you delight to worship. You delight to extol. You delight to lift up the name of your God. Or do you do it out of duty? Do you do it out of a sense of earning favor with God? Do you do it just because? Do you do it because you want to be around a community of people? That's a wonderful motivation, but it's not the primary reason. So Zephaniah is going to call us to jubilant worship of the Lord. The first thing we see about this jubilant worship is jubilant worship is evident. Jubilant worship is evident. Now, again, I think it's important for us to recognize sort of the surprising twist that we see in Zephaniah's prophecy. Again, most of this prophecy is filled with with fearful and, and terrifying descriptions of the judgment of God. In fact, again, I keep going back to the explicitness of chapter 1, verse 17, that God is going to bring distress on mankind, pouring their blood out like dust and their flesh like dung. I think in in many ways that sort of hits the climactic sense of what God's judgment brings. And yet when we come and and verse 8 sort of sets up this um, this, this fearful idea, God is going to rise up and seize the prey, wait for him in verse 8, and then there's this surprise. I'm going to change your speech. I'm going to transform you from the inside out so that no longer will judgment come upon you, but my grace will flow to you unreservedly. And so when we're expecting such a declaration of judgment, but we receive such a message of grace, then Zephaniah naturally tells us, shout to the Lord. Sing aloud, he says. And so what he calls us to is not a subdued worship, but a bold and evident worship that we give to the Lord. Again, look in verse 14. Sing what? Aloud, he says. He calls on Israel to shout, to rejoice and exult with all their heart. The descriptions here are not of reservation, but of intense worship given to the Lord. This term, sing aloud in verse 14, it's one Hebrew word that's being used here. And it implies that the only right response to God's salvation is not merely singing, but loud singing. In fact, the first term, the first use of this term that's used here for sing aloud is used in Leviticus chapter 9. The scene there is vivid. 
Leviticus 9, 23 through 24, Moses and Aaron have, have gone into the tabernacle and, and they're, they're offering for the first time these offerings. And we see this. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they what? Shouted and fell on their faces. I mean, can you imagine the, the response to that scene? I mean, you're, you're sitting here and you're seeing the glory of the Lord on display. And then that glory is, is shown and demonstrated through fire, literal fire falling from the skies and consuming the sacrifice. Again, the first time that this word is used, it is used in connection to the mediatorial office of a sacrifice, the mediatorial work that God has brought, that He has accepted that which is given on behalf of His people. Surely this should be the greatest cause for joy among God's people. In fact, this same Focus on joy and shouting, singing aloud, as we have here in verse 14, is emphasized over and over again in the Psalms. In fact, this term that's used here, it's used 25 times in the Psalms. And of, and of all those 25 times, 22 of them explicitly call for joy. Sing or shout with joy, we find over and over again in the Psalms. It has the idea of shouting or giving out a ringing cry. I mean, imagine what this would have been like back in Leviticus. You know, you have likely over a million people gathered round this site, and they all shout at the glory of and the acceptance of the sacrifice that God gives as He sends fire down from heaven, it would have been amazing to hear the roar of the people. This is further repeated in Zephaniah here, where he calls upon Israel to shout out loud. This term is often referenced in response to a battle cry. So if you think about Israel, as they walked around um, Jericho, they were to walk around, blow their trumpets, and shout out loud. In fact, it is often connected with the use of an instrument, a horn of some type, and generally referring to the shofar, a ram's horn that would be blown and would create a great echoing, loud sound. And so what Zephaniah is doing here is he is calling upon the people whom Yahweh has changed. He's calling on individuals who have had their hearts changed so that no longer are they a people of unclean lips. No longer do they dwell among a people of unclean lips, but the, the altar has cleansed them through the sacrifice of Christ and they are to come. And what is only the, the only acceptable response is shout out loud, sing Strongly and joyfully to the Lord. You know, I, I think about what, what, would, what would be like this today. How could, we, 
How could we sort of say something that would be a similar experience? I remember many years ago, and now it's crazy that I have to say many years ago because I was a teenager, and now that was many years ago for me when I think about my teenage years. But I remember many years ago, um, I had the opportunity to go to a Penn State game. I was with someone in, in the church who had had uh, season tickets, and they're like, hey, you've never been to a Penn State game, so we went to a Penn State game. And, and I remember in particular the chant that sort of echoed through that stadium there. We are, what? Penn State. And you had tens of thousands of people shouting that, that out along in that campus or on that, on that uh, uh, stadium. Think about it if, you know, the, the Steelers and when the Steelers would, would be playing and, and particularly when Heath Miller was playing and he would catch a, catch a reception or whatever, there would be this long, loud thing that would ring out even on the broadcasts, Heath, that we would hear. I, I just bring these things up because they're the only things that we have really to compare as to what type of worship God is calling His people to. Worship that that is filled with exuberance and loudness. Now, here's the sad reality. The sad reality is that we look to sporting events to be the thing that describes that loudness for us. Why is it that we do not respond the same way in worship? How much more strongly do we cheer for our sports teams than we do worship the Lord? Is this your worship? Is your worship one that seeks to be evident, particularly in the, the magnification and the loud singing, the shouting, if you will, of the Lord? How mediocre, how tame sometimes, how quiet is our worship? I think one of the ways that we can implement what Zephaniah is calling us to here is to sing out loudly in worship. And I know sometimes people are, have reservations about that. I can't carry a tune. I can't, I can't go along with the singing. I can't read music. Listen, the Bible says make a joyful what? Noise. Now, we must do all things decently and in order. We must do things that, that recognize and focus upon the character of God. And so I'm not saying that we need to sort of become raucous here in what we do in our worship. But we need to sing out loud. Lift up your voices with strength. The Scriptures command this over and over and over again. I'm thankful. I sit in the front row and, and sometimes I will purposely stop singing to listen to the worship that's going on. And I'm thankful that we generally have an a exuberant worship experience here that people sing out loudly. But we can do more, can we not? Has not your God saved you? And is He not worthy of such an exuberant worship? We need to crank up the volume of our worship. I think it's also important to note here, this is not a call for loudness alone. 
I find sometimes that, that there can be an emphasis, particularly in, in modern church services, where, where there is this sort, of, um, this sort of spectator attitude among the congregation as they watch worship happening on a stage. And there it can be loud and exuberant. Listen, who, who is meant to be loud in this passage? It's not the worship leaders, it's who? The people, the congregation, they are the ones who are to raise the roof, if you will. And so we need to come with loud singing before the Lord. Our worship needs to be evident, and we evidence it in the power by which we ourselves sing to the Lord. You know, I think one way that this can really be applied and understood is you know when you've met a diehard Steelers fan, right? You know the type. They have, they're decked out head to toe, black and gold. They, maybe, their, maybe their van is painted black and gold. They've got all the, the bumper stickers on the back of their, of their van. When you talk to them, what is it that they talk about? The Steelers. How do you think they're going to do? It would have been today, but now it's so bad. So tomorrow, the game got moved. I, I remember in particular, I was downtown several years ago in the Strip District doing some shopping, and there was just this guy walking around saying, Here we go, Steelers. I mean, loud as he could possibly do it. It was evident who he worshipped and loved. Is that same evidence true in our lives? See, we, we know how to do this. We know how to sing joyfully and loudly. We know how to get excited and to let that excitement motivate the way in which we respond to the Lord. Do we act the same way? Do we have the same exuberance as a Steelers fan does? Is our God not worthy of so much more glory than a football team. And so Zephaniah comes in and in response to a God who turns from dealing with us according to wrath to instead dealing with us according to grace. How should we not sing out loudly to Him? May we seek for the evidence of our worship to be visible, both what we do on Sundays and how we live our lives. We need to live out loud for the Lord. So jubilant worship is evident. But secondly, we see jubilant worship is heartfelt. Notice what he says here in verse 14. We're to sing aloud. We're to shout and were to rejoice and exalt with what? All your heart. The reason why we have such overflowing exuberance in our worship is because we are finding and having true joy and love in and from the Lord in all things. He is everything to us. And so, really, if that is the, the desire of our heart Strong, exuberant singing to the Lord will not be hard. 
If it's in our hearts, it will overflow. It will bubble out from us our worship to God. You know, I think it's interesting here. We looked at last week how God made this promise that He was going to change the speech of the people and He would change the speech of the people by changing their hearts, by, by bringing them to respond to His grace by trusting and resting and seeking Him with all their heart. And so what is one of the evidences of a heart that has been purified? What does pure speech look like? It looks like heartfelt worship to God. This is a constant theme in Scripture. Psalm 103.1 Bless the Lord, O my soul, and how much of that which is within us. How much? All that is within us. Bless His holy name. It is the turning of every part of our lives, every part of our hearts. God does not want some. God does not want most. God wants all of you. That's why the greatest command is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. It's complete. Psalm 96, 1-4, through our, our call to worship this morning. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all other gods. Again, notice the the heartfelt worship that comes from a heartfelt affection for God. We sing to Him. We bless His name. We speak of His glory. We talk of His works because those are the things that occupy the greatest aspects of our hearts. It's interesting here that that the overflow, this this continual focus on who God is and what He has done in this psalm, it it sounds like an evidence is someone who loves the Lord. That our worship to God is exuberant and filled with heartfelt desire because that is where our hearts are. We love Him. One commentator said that the command to worship is a command to love. That when we worship the God, it is not disjointed from our love for Him. It is the overflow of our love for Him. And again, our love for God shows that He is the thing that we want more than anything else on this planet. And so Jeremiah tells us that the Lord speaks through Jeremiah. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with what? All your heart. The call to seek the Lord is a call to engage the entirety of who we are in seeking Him. Every aspect of our lives, everything is done with a, with a view to seeking Him more. All of life lived for the glory of God. I think, though, when we look at these words with all your heart, when we see what the Scripture says over and over again, if we look and examine our own hearts, how often are our desires divided? How often do we give God only a part 
of ourselves. And let's just be honest here. How often do we just give him what's left over? I'll I'll get to my time with the Lord so long as I get everything else done. And as long as everything else gets done in in my day, then, then I'll give time to God. You know, if we think about it honestly, if our worship and our praise to God is an overflow of our love for Him, then our love for God is, is often lacking, is it not? I think the reality is we are spiritual two-timers. You know, what does the world think of somebody who, who, who dates two people, who divides their affection between two people? They look on and disgust at that. How dare you do something? And, and, and you see it over and over again in media and in movies that when somebody's found out to be two-timing, both parties break up with the person because we cannot abide that type of attitude towards the one that we are supposedly loving. And yet we do the same thing to our God over and over and over again. So when Zephaniah says, rejoice and exalt with all your heart, that is an immensely convicting statement because if we examine our hearts, so often we do not worship Him with all that we are. Oh, that we would, by God's grace, pursue wholehearted heartfelt, exuberant, and jubilant worship to our God. See, the reality is that coming before God without heartfelt worship is condemned clearly by our Lord. Isaiah 29, 13. In fact, our our Scripture reading this morning, Jesus quotes this statement. The Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. The Pharisees worshipped in pretense. They worshipped only making sure that they, their mouths and the, the words of their lips precisely adhered to the traditions that they had been passed down for generations. They demanded man-made adherence. They demanded adherence to those man-made principles. Strictly, follow them strictly, completely. But they never sought to look into the heart of man. And so Zephaniah is not exhorting us to just simply sing out loud. He's not just calling us to have volume. He's calling us to have heartfelt volume in our worship. That what we sing proceeds from a heart that truly loves us. Listen, God is not honored with lip service to Him. He doesn't want that worship. He wants pure speech. Speech that comes from a heart that has been changed by His grace. 
In fact, Isaiah's prophecy begins with a very clear condemnation of this practice among Israel. Ah, sinful nation of people laden with iniquity, um, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. And he goes on. So this is, this is the heart of Israel, forsaking God. But yet, what have they been continuing to do? They bring their sacrifices week after week. They come and worship in the, te- in the temple. They've been involved in, in the life, in the religious life of Israel. And what does God say about someone whose heart is far from Him, but yet goes through the motions? Notice what He says in verses 11 through 14. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beets. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense? is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity. And solemn assembly, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul, what? Hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. God does not want pretense in worship. God looked on the false worship of Israel through the prophet Isaiah. And this is is how Isaiah's prophecy begins. His assessment is that the vain or the fake worship that Israel is bringing before the Lord because their hearts are far from Him. He hates it. It's a burden for Him. An Israelite could check off all the boxes. I've got just the right sacrifice. It's pure. It's, it has no blemishes. I'm bringing it at just the right time. The priest is sacrificing it correctly. He's doing everything that the law requires perfectly. But then when they go home and pursue a life that is far away from the Lord, God looks on that sacrifice and He despises it. He hates it. And so Zephaniah does not just call us to exert ourselves boldly in worship as a show, but rather that our boldness, our volume, our singing aloud, our shouting come from a heart that wants to sing out loud about our God. That our worship must flow from a heart that loves Him. And so if we love the Lord, then worshiping Him is finding joy in Him. Notice again what he says in verse 14. This worship is a a result of rejoicing and exalting in the Lord. Those two words are important here in understanding the attitudes of our hearts. To sing aloud is to rejoice. To shout is to rejoice. Worship is joy. 
It comes from an attitude that delights in God among all things. Remember Paul and uh, Barnabas in um, Philippi, right? Was that, was that Paul and Barnabas? Paul and Silas. I always get it confused. It's Paul and one of his guys. <laughs> right? they're, they're imprisoned in, um, maybe it's Paul and Barnabas, and it wasn't Philippi. It was someplace else. Anyways, they're in prison. What are they doing in prison? We know the story. Paul and Silas in prison, what are they doing? They're singing. Now, wait a second. They're in jail. How many of you would be singing if you were in Allegheny County Jail right now? And not, not visiting somebody, but the bars have closed upon you. you know, why were they able to sing in those moments because their joy was not set upon their physical freedom even. Their joy was set in the Lord and nothing that any Roman or Jewish court could do could take the Lord away from them. And that meant that nothing could take away their joy. So what did they do? What was the overflow? They sung praises to the Lord. Let's, let's not talk about just things as dire as being thrown into jail. Let's just talk about the regular difficulties of life. Financial problems, relational issues, um, d- difficulties that we're dealing with and, and responsibilities that we have. And these pressures come down upon us and they rob us of our joy. Are we singing praises to God in the midst of those things? Why? I'm not trying to, to say that when bad things happen, your first, should, your first song should be, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Oh, that would be a great response. But, but I am saying, is your joy still there? Nothing can rob you of the Lord. So may our joy be in Him. That's why Zephaniah calls us to rejoice It is the overflow of our delight in the Lord that brings about strong worship to Him. And then notice the second word he uses there. He uses the word exalt with all your heart. We exalt in that which brings us joy. The idea, the term here almost has the idea of bragging or gloating. Now we traditionally think of that in a negative sense, right? Bragging is bad, gloating is bad. But when we're gloating over the glory of the Lord, it is a useful thing. When we exalt in Him, we are giving expression to the deepest desires of our hearts for Him. We love Him so much that we want everyone to know how great He is. That's what true worship is about. I mean, think about the book, the Song of Solomon, which is one that nobody likes to talk about in the church. Because what we see in Song of Solomon is Solomon exalting in his bride. He's rejoicing in her. He's he's speaking of how she brings him joy. And how much more should we exalt in the Lord? Now, There's something remarkable in this passage, and we're going to have to jump ahead a little bit into verse 17. God is calling, Zephaniah is calling Israel to 
sing aloud, to shout, to exalt with all their heart in the Lord. And then notice what is said in verse 17. It's remarkable. It's almost unfathomable. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exalt over you with what? Loud singing. The, the, the image here is almost of, of God's grace and His joy in His people bringing Him to lift up His great voice to sing loudly over us. And so there is an echo from us as we see God loving us. We respond by loving Him. It's remarkable that what God calls us to do in these verses, He Himself does for us. Why? Because He loves us because he is delighted in saving us because we are the joy and the apple of his eye for his glory he rejoices over us with gladness it's remarkable this is, some, this is one of those passages of Scripture that it, if it wasn't in the Bible, you would wonder if it was a right thing to say. And yet, this is what our God does. If God responds to His redeemed in this way, if He delights Himself by singing over us, should we not lift up our voices triumphantly and loudly in praise to Him? So jubilant worship is evident. Jubilant worship is heartfelt. And then finally, jubilant worship is relational. Final thing we see regarding this is that there is a relationship involved. And this is actually going to tie in very nicely with what we're going to look at next week when we see that we're to worship the Lord because He gives us His presence. But notice who Zephaniah is calling upon. He describes this as the daughter of Zion, Israel, the daughter of Jerusalem. It is the people to whom God has covenanted to save. It is His covenant people. These words, daughter of Zion, daughter of Jerusalem, are used interchangeably. It refers to the people that God has made. Now, I think it's important for us to realize what it is that differentiates Zion, what it is that differentiates Israel, what it is that makes or that, uh, that differentiates Zion, Israel, and Jerusalem from all the other nations, all the other cities on the earth. What is it that makes them special? And it is not their physical locations. It is not even their setting apart as a, as a land and a people for God's people. The thing that makes Zion, the thing that makes Jerusalem, the thing that makes Israel, what it is, is God's presence there. Zion and Jerusalem are not merely references to a physical city, but they refer to a reality, the place where God dwells with His people. 
Psalm 74, 2. Remember your congregation, the people of God that you've purchased of old, which you've redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion. What is it that makes Zion special? It's the place where you have dwelt. We actually see this. We don't have the time to go into it in detail, but I'd encourage you this afternoon to read Psalm, 78, Psalm 48. Psalm 48 describes Zion, describes Jerusalem. It's a place filled with evident and strong worship to the Lord. It's a fortress. It's a place of joy. It is built by the unyielding and unchanging love of God. It is a place where God dwells in communion with His people. His presence is the defining characteristic of the holy city. Its strength, its joy, its worship, its fame, all of it comes from Him. Zion is the place where God is. And so it is His presence with His people that produces this type of worship. And so for us today, what is it that drives this type of jubilant worship within us? It is the relationship we have with our God. We do not worship God out of tradition. We don't come here and sing these songs because they've been in our hymnal for 20 years. We don't go about these things following the traditions of men. We come to worship God ultimately because He is our God. We know Him. We are His people. And we seek to extol His greatness. As the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Corinth, a church that was dealing with all sorts of sinful issues, in particular they were, they were going out and, and people in the church were engaging in, in sexual practices with the temple prostitutes in that day. And Paul comes to them and says, don't you know that your body is what? It's a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So what is the response to that reality? What? Glorify God in your body. Why do we come and, and seek to sing out loudly to the Lord? It is because our hearts have been gripped by His grace. Our hearts love Him immensely. Our hearts rejoice and exult in Him. And our hearts find solace and comfort and hope in the fact that He is with us wherever we go. So sing aloud. O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. May we find this joy in worshiping our God. Let's, sing. Let's pray. Father.
We thank you for your word and the truth we find in it, Lord. We thank you that your word is that sharp two-edged sword. Oh, Lord, convict, convict us of the divided passions we have in our lives. Lord, may, may we recognize how we are so easily drawn away to love other things rather than loving you supremely. Father, may we, from this day forward, exalt in you. May our joy be found in you, our Redeemer and King. Father, may, may you transform us so that we would live, Father, that we would live lives to glorify you, that we are not our own. We are bought with the price of the precious blood of Christ. May this drive our worship. And may it drive what we are about to do, Lord, as we sing of the glory we have in our Redeemer. Father, may, may you take these words and may it shake our worship today. May we come back again to honor and worship you triumphantly, exuberantly for all that you've done.